few and to get to, to, to talk through this really rather wild passage in Acts. Um, if you're following in the Pew Bible, it's on page 790. Let me encourage you just to turn back there. It'll be helpful as we, as we work through the passage. Uh, we'll do a little bit of flipping in the pages surrounding it. Um, so let me just encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we're working through this. Uh, this, this sermon is, you know, continuing our study in the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Um, and we've been looking specifically at the mission of God in the world. Um, before we get started any further, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we praise you for your gospel and how it is powerful. Show us your power and your glory through your word this night, a power that is strong enough to transform our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So some of you will know that my wife and I, a couple years ago, spent a year living in London. Uh, we were there for my wife to get a master's degree. And uh, while we were there, I engaged in a sort of evangelism, a sort of personal evangelism. Uh, evangelism simply means that you are spreading good news. You have good news to tell. And my good news to the city of London was simply that I'm there. I have skills and I'm here to help. In other words, I was looking for a job. That was my evangelism. And as I, as I worked at this sort of personal evangelism, I, uh, there were a couple of, couple of things that sort of powered my evangelism that you know, gave it the force for me to spread my message. You know how it works, right? I had my resume in, in one hand and I had my, my network in the other. <laughs> in other words, my power, the power of my evangelistic message of me spreading the gospel of me was uh, it lay, lay completely in myself, in what I'd done and who I knew. That was the power of my evangelism. This story in Acts chapter 14 invites us to consider what is the power within the gospel message itself, within the, the message of the Christian faith. What is the power that is underlying, that's girding, that's forcing into the world the message of Jesus? What is that, that power? And this story just fundamentally shows us two things. Um, it shows us, first, where the gospel does not get its power. And on the other hand, it shows us where the gospel does indeed get its power. And we'll look at both of these in turn. First, where the power is not, and then where it is. So first, where the power is not. The book of Acts, at its core, is about how the Christian message is spread from Jerusalem, where the whole thing started, spread to the far corners of the world. This is sort of Jesus' mission that he gives to the disciples at the very beginning of the book, that they are to spread the gospel to the far corners of the world. And this story contributes to that overarching theme, but it, it does so by showing sort of how the gospel message is seeming to stall in this town of Lystra. The gospel message is, is seeming to hit a wall here. And, and by, by showing us this story of apparent potential failure, we can learn by contrast what is not propelling the gospel message into the world. We can see where the gospel does not get its power. So let's divide this story just into, into three main parts as we work through it. We have the first part, the miracle, the second part, the mistaken identity, and then the third part, the attempted murder. And we'll tick through those, those three parts as we see what either Barnabas and Paul lack or just simply what's not working uh, as they try to spread the gospel. So first, looking at the, the, the first section of the miracle, we see that Paul and Barnabas are not original 
in their ministry. They aren't unique, they aren't great innovators in how they present the gospel. We see, this, we see this indirectly in the passage, but I think it's actually really important for us to see, and it's very intentional what the author of Acts is doing here. Uh, this miracle is actually not the first time that a lame man has been healed within this book. Uh, back in chapter 3, another uh, apostle, the apostle Peter, he, he does something very similar to what Paul does here. He looks... He sort of stares at a beggar. He looks intently at the beggar. He then commands him to get up, and the beggar then stands up, and he leaps. It's actually the same word uh, for leaping that's used in both places, and it's a very similar order of events. In fact, both miracles occur very shortly after a pretty long sermon. So the, uh, the, the point that the author of the book of Acts is making here is um, he's drawing attention to the parallels pretty pretty clearly, between the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul. And we actually read uh, in the Gospel of Luke, which is written by the same guy who wrote the, the book of Acts, we see there a very similar thing actually with Jesus as well. Jesus preaches a sermon, and then a few miracles later, pretty shortly after, he heals a lame beggar. What's Luke's point here? Luke's point is that the, uh, the Apostle Paul is not doing anything unique or special or different here in, in his ministry. He's doing the same thing that Peter did, who did the same thing that Jesus did. It's not unique. He's not innovating here. Let me just make a, a sort of a brief sort of theological argumentative note here for your, for your benefit. Um, some, some have argued that the Apostle Paul kind of came into Christianity and then cooked up a new religion that sort of superimposed on the message of Jesus. You might have heard this. Maybe you haven't. Um, but you might have heard this. This is, um, sort of came out of the German critical school. Um, the, the structure here of the book of Acts is indicating that that argument probably is not true. Luke knew both guys. The guy who wrote the book of Acts, his name is Luke. Same guy as the Gospel of Luke. Luke knew both guys, and he was in a position to know. Pa Paul was not doing anything unique or different here. There's more to say about, about this miracle, and we'll, we'll come back to it in a little bit. But right now, just, just see how... This narrative is highlighting how they are not doing anything unique. And so the inference that we can draw from that is that the gospel is not spreading through the power of innovation. It's not spreading through the power of originality. It's not spreading through some unique and different way of presenting the gospel in this town. Originality isn't what's bringing, the faith, bringing people to faith. Let's now look at the, uh, at the second section, the, the case of mistaken identity. The author Luke here is not highlighting so much what they lack, but rather what can't be trusted to power the spread of the gospel. The power of the gospel we see from this bit does not lie, the power of the gospel does not lie in tremendously strong communication skills. It's not strong rhetoric that's propelling the gospel into the world. Verses 7 and 9, if you look at this passage here in, in Acts chapter 14, uh, verses 7 and 9 tell us that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching the Christian gospel. They're preaching in Lystra, and, and you know, what happens? Well, everything falls apart, right? The people who are there totally miss the point. Um, not only does everyone fail to believe, they in fact sort of turn the opposite direction and, and say, actually, we think you, you guys are God. Let's, 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 uh, let's sacrifice to you as though you're Zeus. It's, it's funny, but it must have been just so frustrating to Paul and Barnabas. 
They're, here they are proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, and then these people are saying, no, actually, you're God. I, 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 let's run with that idea. So frustrating. But it's not as though, it's not as though Paul and Barnabas are inept speakers. We should not draw that conclusion here. Just in the last chapter, we saw that in Antioch of Pisidia, uh, the whole town was coming to hear what they had to say. These guys were, were competent speakers. They had a, a lot of good things to say. And if we look actually at their speech here in context, we see how it actually makes a lot of sense in context. It's helpful to know a little bit of the backstory here. The Latin writer Ovid records a story of Zeus and Hermes coming down to a town in disguise, um, and then nobody in the town actually ends up giving them any, any hospitality. Actually, only two people show them any hospitality. So naturally, uh, Zeus and Hermes destroy the town. <laughs> so the people in Lystra, the town here, almost certainly know this story. It was written half a century or so before this event. They know this story, and so what's, what they're feeling here is not like, oh, wow, these guys are so great. Let's honor them. Uh, what they're feeling is, is fear. They are terrified. They think that if they don't do something here, they are going to get destroyed. They're scared. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do? They preach a little sermon. They call them to repent from their false gods. And then what do they do? If you look at verse 16, they highlight God's patience over the years. This is very different from the pagan gods that they knew. They highlight God's patience. And then they highlight in verse 17 how God gives them good things, drink, things to drink, food to eat. God is a gracious and giving God. They are speaking into this context of fear with skill. It's, it's really, in a, in a lot of ways, a, an excellent example of gospel contextualization, where you sort of take the gospel message and you present it in a very particular way to a particular people into their particular context and their particular fears. <laughs> but but, but does, it, does it work? Well, they don't sacrifice. But if you look at verse, verse 18, Luke sort of emphasizes how they are, uh, they're barely able to restrain them. Luke is sort of going out of his way here to say, look, this, this, this speech, it, it almost didn't work. It almost failed. What's the point? Rhetoric alone cannot be trusted to spread the gospel. Um, Paul and Barnabas are speaking in a way that makes sense, but the city is not comforted. There isn't a mass conversion. Rhetoric alone isn't working. Um, and the same, the same is fundamentally true today. Our gospel, the gospel of the Christian faith, the good news of Jesus, does not spread fundamentally because of our ability to convince people that it's true. Now hear me, it doesn't mean that we should not think about how to present the gospel. That does not mean that we should not think about how do we speak into these people's lives, how do we present the gospel in a way that's winsome. We absolutely should do that. But don't think that that's actually what's going to convert their hearts. It doesn't hear, Paul and Barnabas were probably better missionaries than you. <laughs> Definitely better than me. And it doesn't work. Rhetoric alone cannot be trusted. So third, uh, the last bit where they try to kill Paul. Um, the gospel we see here is not spread through political power. Just after they barely restrain the crowds, uh, we see in verse 19 that these Jewish zealots sort of come into town. They were in the previous town over. They were going to try to stone Paul and Barnabas there. And then and they finally catch up with them here in Lystra, and they, and they succeed in stoning them. In fact, they think that Paul is, 
is dead and they drag him out of town and leave him there. See how, just how weak Paul and Barnabas are in this situation politically. The crowds that they previously were hardly able to restrain are now turned against them. They're totally alone, They're utterly beat up. And don't miss the really thick irony here. Paul, the, the weak missionary here with no political power, very little social standing, was the very one who seven chapters earlier in chapter seven actually presided over the actual murder of a Christian when Paul was, before he was converted to Christianity. Paul in that position had tremendous political influence, tremendous, tremendous social standing. Here he doesn't. He doesn't have political standing. They lack political power, and, and the, the, what we can see is that political power is not the force that they are using to drive the gospel into the world. This, this, this point here, I think, is especially important for us here in this city to remember. Um, you might know that there are some political institutions here. And it's really easy for Christians, even just implicitly, to think that unless we have Christian rulers, unless we have uh, you know, laws built on Christian ideas, unless we even have religious freedom, the gospel will not go forward. We may not think that explicitly. Sometimes we do think that explicitly. But often it's just sort of this under, under, underlying fear that unless Christians control the levers of power, this city is going to you know, go to hell, or this country will. This story is counseling against that, against that fear, against that sense of desperation. We should work for those things. If you're working for religious freedom, do it. That's good. That's tremendously helpful. If you're working to elect Christian leaders, our country will benefit, almost certainly. But don't think that that is what is going to drive the gospel into the world. The gospel does not derive its power from having political standing in the world. Remember that. Keep that in mind. So this story, in a sense, ends you know, on kind of a downer. They're almost dead. Um, but the point here, the sort of general point about where the power of the gospel does not lie is that it does not lie with you and with me. It does not lie with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. It does not lie with the power of man. That is not where the power of the gospel lies. So then where, where does the, the power of the gospel lie? If not, if not in us, where? Um, when, when Stephanie and I were in, in London, um, in a lot of ways my job search was very frustrating. Uh, it turned out that the most influential and best part of my resume was that I had raced bicycles in high school. That's what helped me get a job. <laughs> um, liberal arts degrees are very valuable, but apparently racing bicycles really is what will get you there. <laughs> what is, is the spread of the gospel bound to be as, as frustrating and as depressing and as seemingly futile as my job search was in London? This story shows us that it is not. The gospel will spread because the gospel's power is the power of God. A power that is so strong, it will transform lives. So if you want to, take a look back at the beginning of, of our passage, looking at, at verses 8, 9, and 10. Um, verse 7 and, and verse 9 tell us that Paul and Barnabas are preaching in Lystra. So the obvious question is, well, what are they, what are they preaching? We aren't told explicitly here what their, what their message is, but we can infer that it is very similar to what they were preaching in the previous chapter, in chapter 13. So what are they preaching there? Simply put, they are preaching Jesus. 
They were preaching the power of Jesus. They were preaching that Jesus came in accordance with the scriptures, just as was prophesied, that he fulfilled the scriptures, that he died, and that he then rose again from the dead. That is their message. If you want to look over at, at, verse, or at uh, chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, this is sort of the culmination of their sermon. Uh, Paul there writes, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this is Jesus, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Simply, they are proclaiming that Jesus has the power to save. And this, this is the message of the gospel. This is the good news of the Christian faith that Christians, that Paul and Barnabas and Christians after them are, are spreading into the world, that Jesus has the power to save. And the gospel has power because the person at its core has power. He defeated death. He is alive. He has the power to rule over the entire universe. This person has power, and that is where the power of the gospel message comes from. Paul elsewhere makes the same point. Uh, you might know that the Apostle Paul, Paul wrote an awful lot of the New Testament. Um, and at the beginning of his letter to the church in Rome, in the first chapter, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the story of the lame beggar here at the beginning of our story is the story of the good news of a powerful God entering into this man's life and changing that man's life. That is the story here. I want to show you five things relatively quickly about what we should notice about how the good news of Jesus comes into this man's life. First, it comes through proclamation. It comes through Peter preaching the good news into this guy's life. Now, don't, don't think that I'm con contradicting myself. I don't think I am. The, uh, um, Paul is preaching, but it's not as though it's the power of Paul's words that are transforming this man's life. God is at work through them. The rest of the city doesn't convert, so we know it's not his words themselves that have the power. But the good news is coming through the proclamation of the gospel. That's the first point. Number two. The, the power of God comes through faith. Why did the gospel not reach the rest of the city? We, we, we aren't told exactly, but we, we do know that they don't believe. But we do know that this man did believe. If you have your Bibles open, um, take a look at verse 9. The translation there says that he had the faith to be made well. And this is a very good translation. It's a fine translation. But it smooths over a little bit of the ambiguity that Luke has is, is uh, pointing to in his, in his writing. Um, if you look at a footnote there, footnote, there should be a footnote for that verse. It indicates that it says literally that he had the faith to be saved. The faith to be saved. In other words, this guy isn't believing that Jesus can make me walk. That isn't fundamentally what he's believing. He's believing that Jesus is alive and Jesus is powerful to transform my life. Not just my physical plight, but my whole life. Salvation comes by faith. So salvation comes by faith, second. Third, it comes with power. This beggar can't walk, and he's never walked. But the power of God comes into his life, 
And the one who never walked a day in his life is now leaping for joy. His life is radically transformed by the power of God coming into his life. He's leaping because Jesus is powerful. And fourth, relatedly, it comes with power in his physical body. This man's problem is obviously that he can't walk. His legs don't work. Um, And now he's healed. The lesson that we should not draw from this is that if you believe in Jesus, all your physical problems are going to go away. That's, That's not the point here. At the end of this passage, Paul actually is super beat up. He is almost dead. He has physical issues at the end of this. So it's not as though believing in Jesus makes your life um, really easy and your body's going to work all the time. But know this. This, I think, is the point. This man is healed because his physical body matters. The good news of Jesus Christ is not purely spiritual. It's not purely emotional. It has deep implications for our physical lives for our physical bodies. This this is one of the most beautiful, perhaps one of the most challenging aspects of the gospel, but it's super important for us to remember. Um, Some of you have watched your parents or your grandparents' bodies degrade over time. Some of you may feel like your own bodies are degrading. Uh, You have harsh diagnoses, physical diagnoses. Your bodies hurt. This miracle here Uh, follows in a long line of of miracles um, throughout the Bible, especially punctuated in the Gospels. And these miracles tell us that our physical existence matters. It matters to God. And the Gospel is about transforming that. Um, This miracle points to a future state for all who believe where our bodies will be healed then. That certainly is true for all Christians. And God certainly does have the power to heal us now. He pray, we can pray, and he very well may hear our prayers and heal our bodies. Uh, we can pray for that. We seek that. The same power that's at, at work in this chapter is at, is at work today. There's no reason to think not. Miracles happen. People are healed. That happens. But at the same time, he may not heal our bodies. He may not. But that does not mean that our bodies don't matter. He still cares about our bodies. He sent his son to live in a physical body, to die a physical death, and to rise physically alive again. Our bodies matter. And even regardless of our, of our physical health, the gospel transforms how we live physically in this world. It transforms how we think about sex. It's rather physical. It transforms how we think about, about our money. It transforms how we think about our time. The gospel is physical. It has deep implications for our physical bodies because our bodies matter to God. And fifth, the message of Jesus comes to the weak and to the lowly. This beggar clearly was not powerful. He was begging for money, begging for food. But the good news of Jesus Christ comes to him. Why did the others not believe? We, we don't know but we do know that this man saw his need and that he was looking to Jesus to be saved because he needed to be saved. It comes to the weak and to the lowly and those who know that they need help. Let me speak directly here to those who are not Christian. The good news of the power of Jesus is for you. It is for you. You need it. I need it. Everybody needs it. 
Jesus Christ came to earth and died, not because we were well, but because all of us, every single one of us is sick in some ways. This picture of the lame beggar is really fundamentally no different than all of us in this room, apart from Jesus. We're all sick, we're all struggling to walk. And the gospel is a gospel of forgiveness because we're all guilty before a righteous God and justly deserving his, his condemnation. That's our plight, that's our situation. But Jesus brings forgiveness of sins and transformation of life. This is the message of the gospel. And all that you have to do to receive this good news is to see your need for Jesus and then to look to him in faith, knowing that he can save you and then make him your king. That is what, that's all it takes to become a Christian. That's all it takes to receive this, this life-transforming power that we see here so beautifully illustrated. If you look to him, he will make you well. And finally, to the Christians in the room, let me, let me make one final point for all of us. The same mission that Paul had to spread the gospel into the world, that same mission is ours. We have that same mission. And the power of the gospel lies not in the lies in the message itself and in the God who lies behind that message. And we are to spread that message. But just because the, the gospel message spreading doesn't fundamentally depend on us does not mean, does not mean that we should become fatalistic in some sense, that we should become complacent in some sense. God will use us just like he used Paul in the life of this beggar. And because it's the power of God behind our message of good news for the world, we can work knowing, freed from the burden, that it all somehow depends on us. Feel that freedom that we have as we work for the spread of the gospel into the world. And when we fail, and we almost certainly will fail, we can learn and we can move forward. Just like in verse 20 of this passage, Paul and Barnabas dust themselves off and march on to the next city. We can too confident that it is the power of God that's propelling his message in the world. The power, the same power of God that transformed our lives and that's transforming the lives of so many people around us. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the power that is at work in the gospel through the resurrected Jesus Christ. Would all of us know that power, whether for the first time or the 10,000th, Lord, we pray, draw us closer to yourself and make us love you and your salvation more and more. I pray all of this through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.